What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. Right now, it is Friday, November 6th. So, so I don't know. <laughs> so, that's the date. <laughs> We're almost at the end of this shit, yeah. <laughs> we don't know who the president is here. Oh. I, <laughs> so, oh. if you're wondering if we're going to talk about it, we're not. Because we don't know yet. Even if there was a president, we still probably wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> I remember the first day after the election started, so I, knew, I can't even remember what day that was, but I woke up at 2 a.m. because I'm like, I'm sure there's going to be a president now. So I woke up to check and there wasn't. So I've stopped even bothering to check anymore. <laughs> I did the same thing. I, I got up at like 4 to feed my cats and I looked and it was still the same as when I went to bed. And then I was like, all right, I need to be realistic this isn't happening for a few days <laughs> i saw that they say biden's getting ready to talk today so maybe that'll be some some bit more of a conclusion but who knows uh, i think there's they're still counting mm, such a process yeah again so different to here like i know i won't go into a lot but here the election goes for a day and you know it's crazy it starts about a month before a few ads on the tv that's about it and then the end it's so much quicker here i know you guys I mean, have like, a lot more people but normally you know by people. like that night most likely mm-hmm. who's gonna win and then it normally doesn't take this long i know we were talking about it with lozzy the other day and i was like sh- and everyone seems to still do pa- um like paper voting i'm like surely in this day and age there's got to be an easier way to do this for every country not just america like we do the exact same here so every yeah. country there has to be some type of easier way surely or at least an option for an easier way to vote. Yeah, I guess the problem is it could be hacked if you do it digitally. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, true. But then it could also, all these are the issues with <laughs> mailing votes and whatever. Anyway, we're not going to get into it because everyone's probably had enough. But I just think it's funny that like the whole world is paying attention to our election. And I'm like, I don't even know how other countries' governments work. <laughs> I know. I thought it was quite... Um, this is the last political thing we'll talk about, I guess. But um, so every year at my kids' school, they take them to Canberra, which Canberra is our Washington, D.C. That's where, like, the parliament and the government are. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't go this year because of COVID. So the prime minister, who is, like, the equivalent of your president, so the leader of the country, got up and went on Zoom with all the kids at our school who couldn't attend. Oh, How cool is that? So nice. I thought that was really, I thought that was really amazing, actually. What a guy. um speaking of anarchy we have to talk about facebook because holy shit (laughs) what has happened and if i said holy shit on facebook i'd go to jail apparently so they've released this whole new bunch of community standards which you know i agree with some of them like you know you can't call people racist names which is fine i have no issue with that but then you also can't say words like bitch or um and the the other thing is too they don't take anything into context like in our group we talk about murderers and you know someone will say what a stupid bitch or it's not about anyone who doesn't deserve it basically like they are a bitch yeah yeah so facebook has started auto modding things so they'll just randomly shut threads and posts um and randomly delete other people's posts but that you know it's Maybe we could work around it, but the thing is their systems don't work either. We click on it to see what they've removed or what they've closed and nothing happens. We don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just like a big mess. <laughs> yeah, so if you're in our group and you notice you things are shut off, let us know because Facebook's doing it and it doesn't really tell us. If you're getting sh- comments deleted that you feel like shouldn't be deleted, I mean, maybe it was us, but it was probably Facebook. Like, my favorite one that just sticks in my memory was someone commented and said that Florida is the white trash Australia, and (laughs) Facebook deleted that and said it was hate speech. (laughs) Someone must have been really offended by that. (laughs) That algorithm was set up by someone in Florida. And just, like, it just seems like such a dysfunctional company at the moment like I tried to raise a support ticket for the group where they um where basically I clicked on a notification nothing happened so I couldn't see what the notification was actually about so I emailed them and said send a screenshot I said this is happening so they wrote back saying hello basically what they told me to do was go into the thread that I was looking for information on permalink it take a screenshot I'm like I can't get to the thread you haven't even read one thing about that this is I can't get to the thread to do that if I could it wouldn't be an issue 
So it just seems like there's just a lot of people running around. No one knows what's going on. Yeah. It's a I bit was... scary really because like it's a lot of, there's a lot of work in that group and, you know, and, a, you know, even other people just generally on Facebook have businesses and, you know, things like that. And there just seems to be no accountability at Facebook for anything that happens. Yeah, I've I've actually never been worried about our group getting removed, no matter how many times angry people and family members are like, I'm reporting your group until it gets removed. Like, it's not going <laughs> to happen. But now I actually worry a little bit just because of Facebook, because I've seen a lot of groups getting deleted. Yeah. And I know they say sometimes you have to verify things, but then I'm just basing it on my customer service from Facebook. Anytime something's happened, I wouldn't be confident that they would actually respond to the issue. Yeah, so we're thinking of either making a backup group or something like that. So stay tuned if you're in our group because we'll we'll think of something. But if you're bored ever, you should give the new community standards a scroll because they get very specific and they say yeah. things like, you're not allowed to say, suck my dick. You're not allowed yeah. to say, eat my ass. I'm like, wow, they, they really went into detail here. You're not allowed to. I know that there's some racist terms, which, as I said, I agree with, like, you can't call someone anymore a cow, which I'm like, yeah. That's very specific. It's like they're giving examples. It's like, thanks for giving these people ideas of shitty things to say. So that's what we're dealing with this week, something fun. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about murdering moms or moms who murder. I guess it should be moms who murder suicide, but (laughs) moms who murder is actually Murder and suicide and moms. I know that in the group, um, anytime we post especially a parental murder-suicide and especially a mum murder-suicide, it gets many, many comments. It's very often polarising in the comments for people who kind of think they can understand why the mother did it and then other comments where, you know, which I think is absolutely true, that men do not ever get the same sympathy or compassion in terms of murder-suicides. Um, against their children, which I always find it very interesting. So I thought today that's what the topic we would cover is mums who murder. Yeah. It's always whenever we get a thread in our group, it's we all kind of brace ourselves because, of course, it's obviously a shitty, a terrible, sad topic to begin with, but it always turns into such a huge fight of everyone having very passionate opinions. And it's it's a lot of work on our part to try to keep everyone <laughs> in control. It's a shame because I know that everyone has their kind of um, pet cases that they find most fascinating. And for me, it's definitely murder-suicides would be my main crime one, I think, that I find very interesting. Yeah, I think so too. I was trying to figure out why maybe people seem to be very interested by murder-suicides. And it kind of goes along with what would interest people in true crime in general, I think. But I did find an article from Mental Floss that um, talks about it a little and about what I think it is that draws people to it. Um, It says, a big factor in our true crime obsession is getting enjoyment from the trouble experienced by other people. Tamron Hall, the host of ID's Deadline Crime, said, it's not necessarily sadistic, but if bad faith had to fall on someone, at least it fell on someone else. There's a sense of relief in finding out that it happened to someone else rather than you. But then on the other hand, watching true crime also provides an opportunity to feel empathy. Dr. Michael Mantle, former chief psychologist of the San Diego Police Department, said it allows us to feel our compassion, not only compassion for the victim, but sometimes compassion for the perpetrator. We all get angry at people and many people say, I could kill them, but almost no one does that, thankfully. But then when you see it on screen, you say, oh, someone had to kill someone. It wasn't me. Thank God. There is that same kind of sense of relief that whatever kinds of aggression and impulses one has, we didn't act on them and someone else did. So it sounds kind of bad to be like, we like to see bad things happen to other people. But I think it's more, it's kind of similar to celebrity gossip in a way. Yeah. Like how you like to see, not like to see it, but like you're fascinated by seeing someone. Just human nature as well to be nosy and curious like that's why you know everyone loves to hear about your neighbor's divorce or you know different things like that you always like to hear about things that don't involve you just for that reason (laughs) yeah like it sounds it does sound shitty but like subconsciously you like to hear people are doing worse than you I guess (laughs) (laughs) make yourself feel better for a minute (laughs) but yeah like I think it has a lot to do with even like I was saying with celebrities, like, you know, people love seeing when something bad happens to the Kardashians and they love talking about it and following it. And it's because 
you know, they're so rich and beautiful and seem like they have everything that when something terrible happens, it's shocking. I think that's why everyone was into it when Kanye went a bit loose for a while there not long ago. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, imagine Chris's reaction to this. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also just like a reminder that the people that you see as untouchable or like have this perfect life that they don't really have a perfect life either. And I feel like all the cases that we're going to talk about today as well, they all, you know, generally seem to have come out of the blue. Like, you know, every, all the comments are like, I, I would never believe this would happen and how could she do this and things like that. So it's, um, yeah, interesting when something out of the blue happens. It's just like, like with social media and everything, it's so easy for people to like pretend they have this perfect life, like not to bring them up again, but Shanann and Chris Watts, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Media, I think they have this perfect life and that's why... It was kind of so shocking when that happened. And you just think, you know, about your own self. Like every day, you know, if you post a photo a day, say you'll post something great that happened or the best part of that day. There's, you know, 99% of the rest of the stuff that happened that day is just mundane. And so it's hard to always keep that in picture. Mm-hmm. What we see on online especially isn't what is really happening. This episode is going to be about basically mothers who murder-suicide their kids. And the technical term for it is maternal filicide, which means a child murdered by their mother. And then there's also infanticide, a child murdered in the first year of their life. So some random facts that I found about it, just to give us all some context. When a young child is murdered, the most frequent perpetrator is the victim's parent or step-parent. The rates of infanticide parallel suicide rates rather than murder rates. The risk of being a homicide victim is the highest during the first year of your life. Um, The U.S. has the highest rate of child homicide. And more filicides occur due to fatal maltreatment than because of actual maternal psychiatric illness. And it's interesting, too, because I know with most of these cases, everyone's like, wow, she must have been mentally ill. She must have, you know, had postpartum depression or whatever. But that's an interesting stat that kind of goes against that. Every single post we make about a mother who killed their kid, someone will always bring up PPD. Even if the kid is 14. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Like, obviously, that can be the situation sometimes. And I think it is something that needs to be paid more attention to and people should be more aware of. But when the kid is... Absolutely not saying it never does happen, but it's not not the case in most cases. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially when the kid is seven years old. (laughs) It's probably not the case. You'll probably get someone now who knows. And they'll be like, actually, it can last till seven and a half. <laughs> don't, don't at me. <laughs> you know generally what we're meaning. <laughs> yeah. For maternal filicide, the perpetrators usually have five major motives. One is an altruistic filicide, which is a mother kills her child out of love. She believes death to be in the child's best interest. For example, a suicidal mother may not wish to leave her motherless child to face an intolerable world, or a psychotic mother may believe that she is saving her child from a fate worse than death, which reminds me of Andrea Yates a bit. Yeah. There's also an acutely psychotic filicide. A psychotic or delirious mother kills her child without any comprehensible motive. For example, a mother may follow command hallucinations to kill. Fatal maltreatment filicide. Death is usually not the anticipated outcome. It results from cumulative child abuse, neglect, or Munchausen by proxy. An unwanted child filicide. Mother thinks of her child as a hindrance. Or the spouse revenge filicide occurs when a mother kills her child specifically to emotionally harm the child's father. And this is the rarest motive. But I think those are the ones that seem to get the most attention sometimes. I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just the ones that we see. I feel like the spouse revenge one can be tied into some of the other ones too. Like I yeah, think it especially it can be tied into the altruistic one because and that, I think this is the case with Michelle Boudreaux who we'll talk about first. So, But I think I feel like the spouse revenge one for is probably more common for a man to kind of perpetrate. Um, yeah. But I don't, I, I'm, I'm surprised that it's the rarest motive. Like I would have thought maybe... I don't know, maybe fatal maltreatment or unwanted child would be the most rare one. But anyway, just yeah. interesting. I think that also those ones like stand out to us more because I feel like those are the ones that are talked about the most. So maybe even though they're more rare, like unfortunately there's so much child abuse in the world and child deaths from abuse that you just, they all kind of get lost in the mix. 
And I guess too that this isn't speaking solely about murder suicides either. So I guess there is probably yeah. quite a lot of um, child deaths from parental abuse, which is you know. Yeah, that's true. But another thing I did right was kind of along with what you were saying, but spouse revenge filicide is difficult to prevent because there's usually little warning. This behavior most often occurs upon learning of spousal infidelity or in the course of child custody disputes. The mother is usually convinced the child will be abused if in the if custody is awarded to the ex-husband and decides the child is better off in heaven, which goes with that um, altruistic filicide also. Yeah. So that I found some stats on specifically filicide suicide. And it says a significant proportion, 16% to 30% of filicides end in completed suicide by the mother. Many of the mothers make non-fatal suicide attempts in association with their filicides. When mothers of young children commit suicide, about 5% also kill at least one of their children. And an American study found that maternal filicide suicide perpetrators killed older children more often than infants, with an average age being six years old. And these mothers tend to kill all of their children, and they typically have some form of depression. I guess the ones that we're going to talk about today, too, they all of these, well, kind of, yeah, except for the second one, most of them killed all of their children. All right, so we're going to start today, um, we're going to speak about four cases of mother murder-suicide. And the first one that we're going to speak about is the case of Michelle Boudreau-Deegan and her twin seven-year-old daughters, Katie and Mary. All right, so we actually, this is a very, very recent case that only happened in the last few weeks. Um, and we actually found out about it before it hit the media. There was no articles when we found out about it. Someone who knew the family sent us a message um, on October 25 to tell us what was happening. They said basically that um, someone was worried about them and so they'd gone to the house to do a welfare check. And the only original mention of the crime that we could find was by a page called Whatcom Incidents and News. And it mentioned, all it says is Sunflower Circle, Sudden Valley, Suspicious Circumstance. And they also said in the comments that they wouldn't release any further information. And people were just writing things like, you know, prayers, hope everyone's okay, the usual stuff. It didn't say anything about what had actually happened. So the person who sent us the Facebook message said that a woman named Michelle Angelus Boudreaux had originally killed, sorry, allegedly, not originally, <laughs> allegedly killed her kids then herself. So we started to just do a little bit of digging to see if we could, you know, get any confirmation. We found Michelle's Facebook page and her name on there, and it's still up as far as we can see, is Dr. Michelle Boudreaux Angelus. She said she was a psychologist and her practice was called Rising Sun Psychotherapy. She's still got a website still up. It's drmichelleboudreau.com. And this is just a little bit I took from her website to give you an idea about what she kind of did. It says, professional counseling for individuals, couples, and adolescents. I work from an empowerment model. My goal is to teach clients new ways of perceiving their problem, healthy coping behaviors for responding to their problem, <laughs> and healthy attitudes and communication skills for working with their families, partners, or work environment so they can make changes in their own life. So it's quite ironic now that she was counseling people on how to have healthy communication and ways of coping when this is what happened. Seems a little irresponsible, maybe. Well, yeah, anyway, we're going in a minute and she was actually quite irresponsible. So um, <laughs> in the days before this murder-suicide, she posted a ton on her social media. She made heaps and heaps of posts about narcissistic parents. One of the posts she's got on there is about seven ways narcissistic parents groom children for abuse. Kind to be cruel is your nice parent killing you softly. And then another one was narcissistic parents' psychological effect on their children. This, this is with it. She made heaps of posts about narcissistic parents. So you can kind of now gather what was going on. So a group member tracked down Michelle's official credentials. She was saying that she was a psychologist when she was really only licensed to be a mental health counselor. She'd been put on probation in 2011. And she received many negative reviews, which is still online, about her practice. So one of the ones, I'll just read a little bit of the review. It says, do not waste your money and time. I waited online for her to show up to the appoint. She never did. 30 minutes in, I texted her and sent her an email. I received a text back two hours after the appointment. So then it goes on that basically this person still got charged, even though Michelle was the one who didn't turn up. And another one, which was quite interesting. It says 20 minutes late to the first appointment and then spent the next 10 minutes vacuuming her office. <laughs> <laughs> Completely unprofessional and unreliable. So it sounds like there was maybe a few things going on anyway before 
this event happened. So I know that you found some differences between a psychologist and a counsellor. Yeah, um, I just wanted to see like what the actual difference was, if it was a huge crime to be pretending you're a psychologist when you're a counsellor. Like if it's like you're um, a chiropractor pretending you're a surgeon or what. So it says a psychologist uses psychotherapy to specifically treat severe mental disorders, while a counselor helps clients achieve overall wellness. So a counselor is more like what you'd imagine a therapist to be. They like, talk to you about your problems, your life, etc. So a mental yeah. health counselor, they do general therapy, assist people in day-to-day life management sessions can be more cost effective and there's more emphasis on talk therapy while psychologists they offer disorder specific therapy they typically administer a wide range of tests iq tests tests of neurological function and they may administer tests to patients that they don't see on a regular basis more likely to work with individuals with severe mental illness and behavior problems and i'm also i'm pretty sure um, psychologists can prescribe medication whereas counselors and therapists cannot yeah so it's not great not a great thing to lie about i'd say it says the person who actually found her qualification says she supposedly had her doctorate but is only practicing at the counselor level which is a big red flag which means she's not a psychologist you have to have your doctorate and be licensed specifically as a psychologist to call yourself one so yeah i think to um, be a counselor probably do you even need your master's I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Surely not. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I don't think so either. So, you know, there was t- one thing I think that made this case so interesting was that there was so much online about Michelle and all her dramas. So there's an online court document um, that reveals details between Michelle and her estranged husband, Scott Deegan. The documents for their legal separation were first filed in October 2016. So this dragged on for a long time. Um, The last entry on their court documents was, I think, October 20. So four years of court between her and her ex-husband. The documents show that Michelle was the petitioner and Scott was the respondent. There's not a whole lot of information in the documents. It just kind of lists an overview of the things that happened. But you can look them up if you really want to at the Washington Courts online case search. So over the years, temporary protection orders were filed. They got reunification experts and they also had proposed parenting plans. The final matter that is on this document is October 20 and it states that a proposed parenting plan was put in place. So from this, you can kind of deduce that there was some type of custody plan worked out between them. We know that the court ordered. So we found someone found online that Michelle had, I think, 13 last names across the years, which, you know, so we're like, what is going on here? Like Deegan was one, Boudreaux, Angelus, there was a whole bunch of other ones. But Seems like a red flag. Yeah, she surely can't, these can't have all been her legal names. But anyway, um, there's another document online that we've got the whole thing on our website if you want to read it because it's about, I think, 14 pages. It says that there was a lawsuit filed against this year by Michelle and the lawsuit was filed by her former girlfriend, Carmen Cabrera Fuentes. I think is how you say her name. Mm-hmm. Carmen said that the two met on Match.com in 2017. So that would have been the year after Michelle and her husband's split. And they moved in together in October 2017. The whole document is there. We won't read through the whole thing because that would be the whole episode. But basically, Carmen is seeking restitution for payments she made during the relationship she had with Michelle. The document says that the um, money that she gave Michelle was basically a loan and Michelle knew that. So Michelle had to pay her back. One of just one of the things, for example, it says between November 2017 and October 2018. Carmen spent almost $10,000 buying things at Costco for Michelle and her children. She paid for landscaping at Michelle's home and purchased an iPhone, an entertainment center, and paid for appliance repairs. The document also talks about rings that they bought apparently for each other because they were going to get married, um, but the court says that Michelle you know, basically led Carmen on because she knew that she was still married to Scott Deegan and that they weren't divorced. The lawsuit seems to have been settled um, you know, later in the year and Michelle was ordered to pay back money to Carmen. So that could have, I think, played a big part in all this. So this is all the information we found out before anything had even been released by law enforcement. And on, on October 26, the news was finally confirmed. So Whatcom um, County Sheriff released a statement and it says, a Whatcom County woman shot and killed her twin daughters and then herself in an apparent double murder-suicide late Friday. 
Deputies responded to the scene, a home on Sunflower Circle in Hidden Valley at around 1.15 Saturday after receiving a 911 call from a roommate at the multi-level residence. The roommate reported finding his landlord and her two daughters dead in an upstairs bedroom. Detectives were then called to the home and spent the afternoon and evening collecting evidence. A preliminary investigation found that the mother, identified as 55-year-old Michelle Boudreaux-Deegan, shot her twin seven-year-old daughters while they were sleeping and then shot herself sometime on Friday evening. The investigation indicated that Deegan had been involved in a custody dispute over the children, which appears to be the primary motive before the killings. The three bodies have been turned over to the Whatcom County Medical Examiner's Office. Autopsies are planned. So this murder-suicide happened only six days after the parenting plan was put in place. Um, The person who messaged us said that Michelle was going for full custody of the girls but that um, I'm fairly sure they had been awarded joint custody between her and her husband. So that maybe seems like that this is what kind of set this all into motion. So even though the police have said that this was a murder-suicide and that Michelle killed the kids, everyone in our group, well, not everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, won't generalise, a lot of people were still questioning if her husband, Scott Deegan, had anything to do with it, you know, stuff like what did he do to her to make her do this? I think he's definitely And this happens up. all the time, all the time. Like, not just with this and case. What has happened? It does, like, and I've written here to talk about how, like, does anyone say this about Chris Watts? No. <laughs> I know, or a very, very small minority might say, you know, Shannon was crazy and things like that. But it just is the majority of comments are like, wow, she must have been pushed to the edge to do this. Whereas it's never, ever the same for men, I find, which is, and I guess, and I know it's because our group is mainly women. And I just found it interesting in this case too, with all this information, when you read the court documents with Carmen, it's clear that Michelle was a little bit unhinged. Like this isn't a woman who there is no evidence of, there was nothing stable about her life essentially and we knew that and people were still debating how it could happen. Yeah, I just, in cases like this, like I get in some the husband could, but just like (laughs) even if the husband is like the worst, that's still like victim blaming in a sense. Like even if he was shitty, she's still the one who killed the kids. So it's just it's just interesting and I think it has to do with like you said most of the true crime people people who are into true crime are women and can relate more to the female and just assume that she couldn't do something like that that women don't ever want to believe that another woman could do that to their children like you know I think it maybe it makes women feel vulnerable and like oh my gosh you know if that yeah. could happen to them, maybe it could happen to me. And, you know, I know as a mother, there's been times where you feel like you're losing your mind. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to go crazy here. Yeah. So maybe, you know, and that that's a weak moment for me. And I'm assuming a lot of other people feel weak when that happens. So maybe it's just a bit of a scary thing for people to think about. But it's like exactly like you said, with like the Tote family, no one was really like, yeah, oh, yeah. what did the what did the wife do to make Tony do this? No one at all said that, except maybe yeah. him <laughs> in his letter. Anyway, so people were still adamant that the husband must have been involved in this. So I'm were, assuming... Some people were even saying it was a cover-up or something. Yeah, I know. Like, he must have gone in and killed them and then made it look like she did it. Like, um, and then <laughs> like, what? The other thing is, too, he also took down his social media, which I don't absolutely don't blame him, but people took that. More as, people should do that. People took that as an admission of guilt. Like, wow, he's taken down everything. He must be guilty. No, he just doesn't <laughs> want all this creeps looking at his Facebook. <laughs> so, obviously, people were still ca- contacting the sheriff about Scott's involvement in the case, and they actually released a statement about this, which I think was really proactive it was good I I feel it was good it's sad that they needed to do it but it was most of the time they just let them suffer and they just yeah never ever clarify so it said the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office has ruled out any involvement from Miss Boudreaux's estranged husband in the incident his whereabouts during the timeline have all been accounted for and he has a strong alibi evidence at the scene clearly implicates Michelle as the only suspect in the death of her two daughters after which she subsequently took her own life a handgun was recovered from the possession of Miss Boudreaux and was consistent with the murder of the children and her own death. And this bit. Autopsy results confirm this as well as the fact his children had been given a large amount of sedatives, which had rendered them incoherent at the time of the incident. Evidence from the scene also indicates that Miss Boudreaux planned this event over the course of several days prior to the discovery of the body. She clearly stated her, her suicidal ideations and that she would never leave her daughters alone without her. A court hearing 
On October 20, where joint custody was awarded to both Miss Bridgeau and her estranged husband, appears to have been the precipitating event that led to her decision. So um, one interesting thing that we didn't I didn't mention yet about Michelle is that there was one of the twins was a lot smaller than the other twin and there was some um rumors which they are only rumors we have no proof of it is that one of the twins there was uh, evidence of Munchausen's by proxy so that's basically where the mother kind of makes it's the same as DD and Gypsy Rose where the mother kind of makes the child sick for lack of a better um yeah and to have some type of control so, you know, sometimes they give them, for example, unnecessary medication. Um, it says it's a mental health problem where a caregiver makes up or causes an injury or an illness to a person. So, you know, in Gypsy Rose's case, they faked all her illnesses. And, you know, I think people were saying that might have been a reason why the twin was quite small. Um, so, you know, who knows if that has anything to do with it. But um, I had a look just to see if I could see some stats about murder-suicides with a gun, and I found some from National Criminal Justice Reference Service. Of They studied 408 murder-suicides. Most perpetrators were men, 91%, which is so, you know, 9% women, and most used a gun, 88%. I, th- I feel like a gun is a quick way. Three out of the four we're talking about today used a gun, so I know that most women want, wouldn't want their children to suffer either. So at least it's quick, I guess. So I also found a report that said compared to Canada, the US had three times more incidences of murder-suicides which involved whole families. Compared to Britain, they had eight times more and compared to Australia, 15 times more. So, you know, again, that might come back to the availability of guns. We're not debating that here, but that is a fact that I think the USA do have easier availability to guns than these other countries. And that Canadians are very nice and polite. (laughs) Um, So up until this point in this investigation that we did, we didn't know the names of the children. Um, There was a nanny who used to look after the children. She joined the group, but she didn't want to give out their names, which, you know, totally understand. But the family finally released an obituary for the two girls and their names were Katie Elizabeth and Mary Annalise. So I'll just read their death notice. It says... Twin sisters Katie and Mary Deegan were born together on February 7, 2013 in Bellingham and passed away together at home in Bellingham on October 24, 2020. Katie and Mary's smiles brightened everyone's day as they brought constant rays of sunshine to their beloved Bellingham. Their giggles and sisterly love will forever be embedded in our hearts and memories. The girls will always be together in God's care, just as they entered this world as miracle babies. Their mother Michelle and their grandfather James have both passed away. They are survived by their father, Scott Deegan, and that lists all the rest of the family. Um, and then they also listed Michelle's family. So you're invited to attend a gra- graveside service, at, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I thought that was very civil and very kind of that family to include Michelle in that obituary and her family. I know in a lot of cases they just kind of don't mention whoever the perpetrator was in their family at all. Yeah. One thing to kind of note is that Michelle was a little bit older. Michelle was 55. So that means she had the kids when she was in her, you know, late forties. So maybe that's where the miracle babies bit of the obit comes from. So um, in this one, you know, when we talk about why Michelle did this, my thought is that the main trigger for her was that her husband had been awarded joint custody. I feel like she probably wanted sole custody, especially based on all her narcissistic parent posts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that the financial there's obviously some financial stuff going on for Michelle if she, if Carmen gave her all this money um, and she had to pay some of it back like when we talk about the five major motives for me I think it's altruistic and probably spousal revenge for her yeah I don't think she wanted the kids to be with the dad by themselves and I also you know think that she believed that the world wasn't fit for them all so that's why she did it I think she also must have had just from hearing about her life and pretending to be a psychologist and like the reviews and how she's vacuuming I feel like her life seemed pretty chaotic I don't know if that shows that she had some sort of mental illness like I'm not here to self-diagnose her or anything (laughs) but it's just a I guess someone who's had 13 names in her life there's something a bit (laughs) unusual going on and I think anyone who has that many names is trouble I'm pretty sure we tracked down at least three marriages, um, you know, which obviously isn't doesn't mean much, but there seems to be a lot of movement and a lot of, um, you know, maybe very, very hectic. Yeah, 
Yeah. And even the fact that, you know, she the roommate found the body. So there's lots of people in their lives coming and going, it seems. So who knows mm. why that is. Maybe she just liked change. Maybe people didn't like her. We don't know. It's all. Yeah. I'd be um interested to know, like, if looking back her, the lawyers or the people who are involved in their um, custody battle with the parenting plan stuff, if looking back they saw any red flags or anything. Or I'm guessing they probably didn't see too much for them to at least award joint custody but then in saying that maybe the dad didn't even go for sole custody do they can they award it if you don't go for it I don't know I don't know but I mean like just specifically at that like last event if they met at all like if she was acting a little mm. weird or anything I wish like I wish I could have read more of the documents about their you know the whole four years of their separation because there was things like protection orders and yeah so anyway, it's um, it was it sounds like it would have been also a stressful time for the kids. So it's just a sad ending to a big mess, really. Mm-hmm. So the next case we're going to speak about is the one of Cynthia Collier and her four teenage children from Maury County, Tennessee. We are following a story in Murray County that is heartbreaking to hear, talking about four children and their mother are dead and what the district attorney is calling an apparent murder-suicide. Authorities found their bodies in Columbia. News 4's Alexandria Adams is live from the Murray County Sheriff's Department. So, Alexandria, what can you tell us this morning? Yeah, good morning, Holly. An absolutely tragic situation here in Murray County. The sheriff describing it as a horrible situation. You've got four children dead, ranging from ages uh, roughly 8 to 16 years old, as well as their mother. I want to take you back to the scene uh, last night around 6 o'clock. That's when a family member made the discovery and found all of these victims. You've got three uh, young girls here, as well as their brother and their mother. Uh, the sheriff says that a gun was used in this incident. Right now, the sheriff is asking the community for prayers. So I'd ask our community to, to lift the rest of this family and friends uh, up in prayer and remember those and be respectful of the family as well because uh, they're, they're victims in this and of course they're going to have to deal and learn how to, how to deal with this and how to live life without uh, their loved ones. Right now, we're working to find out more information about this family. We do know that these children were homeschooled and that the sheriff's department is talking to other family members about what may have led to this incident. This one's from 2018. It's October 15. A call was made to 911 at 6.19 p.m. on that day, and they raced to the Collier house. Afterwards, the sheriff said they went in to secure the house, at which time they found five victims, all suffering from gunshot wounds. The house is located in the 1000 block of Carter's Creek Pike. Maury County Sheriff Bucky Rowland, or Rowland then identified the deceased mother as Cynthia Collier, who was 55. The victims were her children, Bo Lee, who's 14, Megan Lynn, 14, Leah Lynn, 15, and 17-year-old Kaylee Lynn. The four children had been adopted from China by Cynthia and her husband. I wonder if all the, the Lin ones were actual sisters. Yeah, maybe, because then there's Bo Lee. Yeah. They, the sheriff held a press conference the next day, which was October 16, and he said there is nothing that would lead us to believe this is anything other than a murder-suicide. This appears to be a loving home. It was an immaculate home, a very loving family. So what motive would be... So a motive would be very important to know what would lead someone to do this to her loved ones. So um, there's not a whole lot of information online about Cynthia. I'd never found an open social media profile or anything like that. I have found it for her biological children, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, so we're just basing it off, you know, the little that the media has given us. So Cynthia married a man called Randall Collier in 1982 in Norfolk, Virginia, when he was 22 and she was 19. So between 2003 and 2008, that couple adopted four children from China, and these are the four who are in the murder-suicide. They also had three biological children together who are older than the adopted children, and they were also un- they were unharmed in this incident. So I know that you said it's like it's a long process to adopt kids from another country, and it would have been expensive, and it's just especially um, for four of them. My yeah, I have cousins that are adopted from. One is adopted from China and three are adopted from the Ukraine. And I remember for my aunt and uncle, it was such a long and drawn out process because they had to foster them first and then they had to adopt them. And there were just so many 
obstacles along with just having to like travel to China and travel to the Ukraine like a few times. Yeah. It's a long process. It's expensive. So it just it seems crazy to put in all that effort to get these kids, usually to give them a better life, and then to do this. And it's unusual too because they adopted the kids apparently between 2003 and 2008. But in 2007, Cynthia and Randall apparently separated. So this, I'm assuming that the adoptions were probably in the works anyway before this separation, you know, so, you know, maybe they just kept going ahead with it because they, I'm assuming it's probably one more kid they adopted in that one year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they separated in 2007 and he moved off the family property in 2009. So this is, you know, nine years bef- before this murder-suicide happened. The family moved to Columbia from Franklin in 2016 and one of the couple's children, adult children, lived in the home with Cynthia and the adopted children. There was no record of any domestic incidents. Their house was 7,500 square feet and 36 acres and it appeared to be a very loving family. Apparently, Cynthia had been homeschooling all the teenagers and in March 2018, after they'd been separated for 10 years, Cynthia and Randall finally started divorce proceedings. There was an article I found in the Columbia Daily Herald and it said, by the end of May, so that's two months after they started the proceedings, they were attempting to reconcile, which this obviously sounds like it's on and off for a decade. It's crazy. Sounds like Laurie Val. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that as well. <laughs> I feel like I can relate every like one of these stories to her somehow. <laughs> so they asked at the end of May that the case be dismissed. They during the pro, the divorce filing process, each of the seven children gave sworn statements. The statements show the teenage children asked to continue living with their mother and that they barely knew their father. So that's kind of a little bit interesting. So. Uh, after the murder-suicide, the sheriff indicated that Cynthia had left some information behind confirming that it was a murder-suicide. We're assuming this was a note, um, and I have read that it was handwritten, but the note contents has never been released that I can find. And they also said, which I thought was random, that they didn't include it in the investigative file, which I'm not sure why. But I feel like the only reason would be just to keep it private for respect. Yeah. The sheriff said there was some information left. It was very brief and vague that would indicate it was a murder-suicide. So two months after this all happened, they released some more information finally and they said that Cynthia's adult biological son was the one who discovered all the bodies one day. Their children were killed with multiple guns, including a shotgun. Kaylee was found on the floor multiple of the Multiple guns? That's so weird. I know. Like why would she need? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, Kaylee was found on the bathroom floor. She had 13 gunshot wounds. Leah was found in her bed. She had nine wounds. Bo was shot four times and Megan was shot eight times. Bo and Megan were also killed in their beds, which um, I know that the 911 call came in at 6.19 or whatever at night, so I wonder if she killed them first thing in the morning because Mm. otherwise it would be random that they were in their beds. Anyway, in the carnage, Cynthia fired 34 rounds into the children and she then shot herself in the head. There was no drugs or alcohol in any of the systems of any of the deceased and, you know, like we said, they've never, ever made the suicide note public. Um, The Maury County Mayor, Andy Ogles, said at the time, there's a lot of angst and uncertainty and trying to figure out why and how this could happen. How could four children be taken all at once in such a violent fashion? We'll never fully understand, but maybe we can learn from it, bringing awareness to mental illness. So there are obituaries online for all of the five, um, and I did find Cynthia's especially interesting because this is what they've said in it. It says, Cindy was a loving and devoted mum and Grammy. She was a tender and sweet soul who always put others first. She embodied selflessness, pure love, and a childlike, joyful spirit. Despite the struggles of her life, she sought to live out the will of God. She was adored and treasured by all of her children. So I thought that was an interesting focus for her um, obituary because of what she did, you know, which leads me, and for her, I think hers is probably an altruistic one where, you know, for whatever reason, she believes she was doing the right thing in killing the kids. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times when you see an obituary for someone who committed a murder-suicide or something like that, sometimes they seem so over the top just because it's like to us how can you say like she was such a loving and devoted person when she just brutally violently murdered these children but i think that generally you know the family's known them their whole lives and there must be some understanding that there 
was mental illness or something at play. So they just want to paint them in a good light and make them look better like the people that they knew them to be. And the other thing is too with these adopted children, you know, obviously I don't know at all, but maybe there were some special needs. Like we don't know mm-hmm. um, what had happened. So, you know, if if there was, maybe that's something that, you know, could have pushed her to the edge basically. Yeah. I saw that there was a comment left on her obituary and it says, my heart is heavy for the loss of my friend and sister and my prayers are for the family that they will have found peace, comfort and strength found only in him. Love you all. So um, I'm a bit puzzled about this one. As to why it happened, we don't. Obviously, there's a lot less public information, so it's a lot of speculation. Maybe she just became tired of having no resolution in this marriage separation and, you know, reconciliation. Maybe she Um, just wanted to kill herself and took them with her. There could have been medical issues. There could have been, you know, special needs. We don't know. But, um, I mean, and it did seem like I don't, I haven't made any haven't seen any reference to financial troubles. It seemed like they had a nice house. There was nothing really big financially that was happening that we've seen. So, and the other thing I can't imagine too is um, how she did it without anyone knowing. Like, how did she shoot nine rounds into one kid and then, you know, all these rounds? That's into what the I other was just kid. thinking too. Like, and for them to not hear anything and change guns, like, yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, and it also says, unlike Michelle, no drugs and alcohol were found in the systems of anyone. So, and I, they have been very closed-lipped with this. I, th- I think maybe because it's a small town, um, they're all just trying to kind of minimise speculation, I guess. But by doing that, it kind of leads to more speculation. <laughs> yeah, so. it's kind of just a respect thing. Maybe they knew people. A lot of people in the community knew them. And yeah. Anyway, that's a that's a crazy one. That's always stuck with me. Um, I just can't believe that four children at once can be murdered like that. The next case that we're going to talk about is one that's, these are all quite recent, but this one is from April 23 of this year, and it's the murder-suicide of Kimber Shanafelt and her daughter, Dani. Brad Shelley, Sheriff deputies were out here all last night and throughout the day today. I spoke with people who live nearby who are dealing with this tragedy in their own neighborhood. Chalk drawings on the wall, a sign little hands were at play here now fenced off by yellow crime scene tape. To even think of that happening just rips my heart. You know, it's just sad that that could happen at all. A mother and her daughter found dead in a home decorated with the child's artwork. Donnie, five years old, and her mother, Kimbra Shandefelt, were found in the home on Bob Court Drive. Kimbra found in the garage with what the Vanderburgh County Sheriff called obvious trauma to her body and her little girl upstairs in a bedroom. Right now, we do not have a suspect. Neighbors called this community quiet and say people tend to keep to themselves. So when they saw deputies across the street and that yellow tape go up... Because we knew then, okay, something's really happened. Dottie Grimes said she didn't know the Shandefelts, but the news of their deaths left her in shock. We were just floored. You know, we've lived here a little over a year and a half, and I've never noticed anything in the neighborhood. Everybody's kind of to theirself, and nobody bothers anybody. With the nature of the crime, neighbors like Dottie are on high alert. Enough to say, okay, if you don't normally lock a door, okay, I'm probably going to lock it tonight. The hardest part to process, that a five-year-old child was one of the victims. So on April 23, the police were called to a home in Evansville, Indiana. The Vanderburg County Sheriff Dave Wedding said that the deaths were found, sorry, deaths are being investigated as a possible double homicide at a duplex in Evansville. The 911 call was placed by a concerned relative and it came into the sheriff's office as a medical assist call. A woman was found dead in the garage of a duplex with what the sheriff's said as obvious trauma to her face and body. A short time later, a toddler was found dead in an upstairs bedroom. At the time, we weren't quite sure of the um, relationship between the two victims, but the sheriff did say, you get called out to something like this, you have a probably mother and a young child deceased, so it's disturbing. So even though they said the mother at this time had trauma to the face and, you know, they were uh, investigating it as a double homicide, (laughs) they said our favourite thing and they said no threat to the public and that there were no suspects outside the home. So I still I still don't understand how there could be a double homicide at this point without without there maybe being a possible suspect. 
or a threat to the public. <laughs> anyway, so um, they did release details of the 911 call for this case and it says, I think something's bad happened, the re- relative told the 911 dispatcher. They said they went to the house with a key to check on Kimbra after she'd not answered her phone for a couple of days. The relative told the dispatcher they located Dani lying halfway under a bed and it looks like she's thrown up or something and she's cold and her eyes are halfway up in her head. I need some help fast. So they conducted autopsies on the mother and daughter and they retracted their original statement then that Kimbra had been found with trauma to the face. Dave Wedding spoke again and he said, right now we just don't know what happened. We don't have strong evidence that somebody from outside came in and did harm to them, but we haven't ruled it out. So I'm still, you know, when we, I won't get into it, but it's just crazy to me that that was their initial thought. I wish they'd release more information so we know. Kimbra and Dani's family started to talk to the media about them. Dana Markey, who was Kimbra's sister, said she had a, uh, had a kind of quirky off-centre sense of humour. She was really compassionate. She was kind of the artsy type. She loved handmade jewellery and music and corny jokes, and she loved her kids. Kimbra also had an older son who I don't think lived with her. Um, he was a teenager and he lived, I think, with his father. Uh, Dana also spoke about Dani. She hu- hugged everyone. We could go to restaurants and she would hug the waitress. She never met a stranger. And then Kimber's friend also said about Kimbra, I can say she would have been absolutely shocked by how many people have been touched by all this. She always smiled at everyone and she just did her best to provide and work hard. Her family was important to her. Um, and there's lots of photos online on Kimber's Facebook of her and Dani and, you know, she just seems like a normal mum. Someone had found online that Kimbra, I think, had liked a um, like a HIV charity provider or something like that. So there was speculation that maybe she knew someone with HIV, but Dana revealed that it was actually Kimbra who had been diagnosed with it about a year before the deaths. So the medical examiner completed their investigation and they ruled the deaths of the two as a murder-suicide by carbon monoxide, which was very unexpected for us, I thought, based on, you know, the trauma to the face and the fact that um, Dani was found in bed. They said Kimbra's death was ruled a suicide while Dani's was a homicide. He said the deaths most likely occurred sometime on the evening of April 19. The 911 call was made four days after their deaths, according to that. Dave Wedding spoke again and he said, it's sad and it's puzzling. We do wish we could have known what was in the mother's mind. We are looking at it as kind of a reckless homicide situation. We think her actions precipitated the girl's death. Did she plan it? We cannot be 100% sure. It's a head scratcher because you can't interview anybody. I feel like there are more answers that could get to this based on the time of deaths and, you know, if they died at the same time and things like that. So, you know, they have never released anything like that. So It's weird though because... I mean, the 911 call says that the kid was laying halfway under the bed. Mm. And I know they've said that sometimes carbon monoxide can cause you to add a bit loopy. Um, And the other, I don't know, like this is what I mean. There's so much speculation in this one. Maybe she saw the mother dead and maybe ran up to hide. And they've, they've said that Kimber would have died quickly in the house's one car garage and the exhaust fumes could have seeped into the house as her vehicle continued running, using up its fuel. So I guess, like I've written, I have so many questions about this one. Was it a true murder-suicide? Did Kimbra only really want to kill herself and she assumed that Dani would be found before before she herself, the kid died? Did she yeah. kill Dani first with the carbon monoxide and then put her in under the bed or in the bed? And maybe, you know, and I've always wondered about the trauma to her face, but I guess that could be explained, for example, if she fell on something or if, even if when she died, say if, if she was in the car, Maybe she her head went on the steering wheel and that could explain some type of, you know, post-mortem looking trauma. For some reason, the way that it read, it made me assume she wasn't in the car, which I feel like is weird. Like that. Well, they, yeah, just, they don't say the car. They just say the garage. So, yeah, like I just would think it was weird if she was outside of the car, which I feel like is how they make it seem like. Because what are you doing? You're just standing around like waiting to die, like at least have a seat. <laughs> I just can't believe also maybe someone will know more and can let us know that there could be enough carbon monoxide emitted from a car to go into the house, into a bedroom to kill someone. Like I feel like that would take a lot. I knew this older woman who was a little forgetful and a few years ago she ended up leaving her car running in her garage and went inside and didn't realize that the car was on and, you know, went to bed at night and never woke up because the carbon monoxide eventually got into the house and killed her. 
Yeah. And I know it's, um, what do they call it? Like there's an odorless and all that I think usually as well. So um, I don't know. It's just crazy. I feel like that's such a simple mistake to make. Yeah. That's why I was wondering with this, like, was it an accident? Like, how do they know it was a murder-suicide? How do they know it was a suicide? Like, Yeah. And yeah, and then also the other thing is, I, I so I like I wrote, why do we think that she did this? I guess it depends if you think that she purposely did it or she didn't. But I wonder how her health actually was if she'd been diagnosed with HIV. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe she passed out and something happened. And yeah, that's true. I didn't even think of that. I don't know. But um, according to their obituary, the pair died on April twenty-two, which is different to what the police have said. They said April nineteen. I'll just read a little bit from it. It says, Kimber Renee Marquis Shannafelt and her daughter Dani Jo Shannafelt passed away at their home Thursday, April 22. Kimber was a 1988 graduate of Wright's High School and an optical lab technician with Amada Optical. Dani Jo was a kindergarten student at Highland Elementary who loved animals, the Disney movie Frozen and the colours pink and purple. So I tried to Google to see if there'd been anything further on the investigation in this and there hasn't. They've just, all they've said it was carbon monoxide, murder, suicide, you know, homicide, suicide. Um, I guess if, if it wasn't a true um, murder, suicide, this could actually be, I guess, a fatal maltreatment because they didn't, she didn't anticipate the death of Dani. She just, she was just trying to kill herself, but we don't know. It's an interesting one. And I just feel like, cause there was so much, it looked like misinformation and they released it and then they had to kind of retract and say, no, actually, that's not what happened. Seems kind of just like a generally crappy investigation, to be honest. Dave just liked talking a lot, Dave Wedding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the final one then that we're going to speak about, and this one there isn't a whole lot of information, so we'll just touch on it quickly, but January 24th, 2020, Rangers started searching the Rocky Mountains National Park in Colorado and they were looking for a reportedly suicidal person. They even stopped traffic going into the park at the Beaver Meadows and Fall River entrances that day from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. They'd found an abandoned vehicle in the area and that vehicle um, was, I guess, registered to Tristan Watson, who was a 24-year-old woman. During that search, they quickly found two bodies and they confirmed that the body was that of Tristan and her 17-month-old son, Christopher. A young mother and her 17-month-old son were found dead in Rocky Mountain National Park last week in an apparent murder-suicide. According to an obituary from the family, their family lost three people last week because they say Tristan Watson was pregnant with a girl named Aspen. The 24-year-old mom leaves behind a large family, including a husband who wished she got help. Her family is now trying to honor their memories by supporting resources to help people struggling with mental health issues. They're also asking people to donate to the National Alliance of Mental Health Illness in her honor in lieu of flowers. In a post on Facebook, her husband pleaded for people who are struggling to get help. Derek Watson wrote, if you are struggling or you know someone that is, please reach out to them. If they are unwilling to help themselves, seek the help they need for them make sure they get help. It can be difficult to get someone into treatment who doesn't want to go. If this is happening with your loved one, the Mental Health Center of Denver recommends calling Colorado Crisis Services. It's not just for people who are having troubles, but also for their family members who need help figuring out how they can help. Autopsies were carried out by the Larimer County Sheriff's Office and it was determined that Christopher died from a gunshot to the head and his death was ruled a homicide. Tristan also died from a gunshot to the head and her death was ruled suicide. So even though the police said that two people died um, on the day, Tristan was actually pregnant with a baby girl that was due in June and they noted that in the obituary of the trio, I guess. Tristan Annette Rogers Watson, Christopher Allen Watson and Aspen Ann Watson passed away on Friday, January 24th, 2020. This was a like not a weird one. It was unusual because she was pregnant. She had such a young son. I feel like this is the one where it would be postpartum depression if it's going to be at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked up and I found some information on depression in pregnant women. They, there was a study of more than 700 pregnant women in Illinois and they found that one in 20 of those uh, reported having suicidal thoughts, which is twice as high as the general population. And there's also, as well as postpartum depression, which happens after you've delivered the baby, there's also 
depression during pregnancy, which is called antepartum or perinatal depression, depending on where you are. So I don't know if you could even have both, if, if it can like a double up postpartum plus antepartum. And if it does, that sounds like it would be horrible. Um, I found another study called Systematic Review of Prevalence of Antipartum Depression During the Trimesters of Pregnancy. And it said basically that they uh, surveyed 4,303 mothers. Oh, no, sorry. 4,303 tested positive for depression in a sample of 28,000 pregnant mothers, giving them the prevalence rate of 15%. And I tried to then look up the general depression rate in women, and there's one called Why is Depression More Prevalent in Women by Paul R. Albert, who's got a PhD. And he said that the prevalence in women was generally 5.5%. So it's 10% more higher for women who are pregnant, it seems which I, you know, I've been pregnant, I've had two kids and it's a crazy, crazy time, you know, no sleep, your hormones are going crazy. So I I can see how it could all become very overwhelming coupled with depression. Tristan's husband, Derek, released a statement on Facebook soon after their death. And he said, I've been trying to find the words, but I simply have no words for the pain that this family is going through right now. Three lives taken far too soon. If you are struggling or know someone that is, please reach out to them. If they are unwilling themselves, seek the help they need for them. Make them get the help. It should never end like this. The burden passed on to others is far greater than any burden you may be facing. And in her obituary, they also asked for donations in her name to, is it NAMI? NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They're, on their website, it says it's the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to building better lives for the millions of Americans affected by mental illness. So I do think in this case, the main um, trigger was postpartum depression or some type of pregnancy depression. And, you know, obviously, again, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but it must have been um, major, whatever she was going through, for her to do this herself, her son, and her unborn baby. It's very sad. So um, Danielle actually helped me with this. She sent me a bunch of links for some of the murder-suicides, and there was so many we could have chosen from. Um, I picked these four because they were probably the most popular in our group and most – I don't want to say memorable, but ones that stuck with me. If you go into our group, though, we are, well, like we said it before, we've got the topics. You can click murder-suicide and read, you know, if you want to read more and more. I feel like murder-suicides are even, like, just, like, moms killing their kids. I feel like it's way more prevalent than people realize. Yeah. I do, a lot I, of them like- don't have a ton of information released, and a lot of them aren't. They don't get as big as some, like, Andrea Yates or anything like that. Um, But I feel like it's much more common than people realize. Yeah. There was one that we spoke about actually in the group this week, and it was from August, and it was about a woman called, I think, Rhiannon Gagnon or Gag, I don't know how you say Gagnon anyway. She shot her two teenage daughters and then killed herself. And, you know, she'd written a few things on her Facebook about how the kids wouldn't stop fighting. And everyone's like, wow, she must have did it because they were just fighting all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? You know, obviously it just depends on the mental illness, drug abuse in some cases. I feel like there's been a lot more recently or this year. Like, I'm not sure if that's just me, like, noticing them more, but it was like six murder-suicides in a row or or just like parents killing their kids and it's just crazy. Even when you Google parental murder-suicide, there are so many articles out there. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just fascinating. And I guess because there's so many different reasons why it could happen, every single one is different. So I think that's it for Mums Who Murder today. Um, you know, this is, a, as I said, one that I am interested in. So maybe we'll do another Maybe we'll do Dad's Who Murder next. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to like do one with like more research into the differences, like like science research. I mean, yeah. But I was looking. At, I mean, there is studies, but it's not. I, I found a really in depth study randomly, and but it was from Nigeria. I'm like, this is <laughs> it was quite interesting. But I was like, this is a random. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's interesting how society reacts to you know, when fathers do it versus when mothers do it, like we were saying earlier. Um, it's just, since we have our group, it's just so easy for us to see the way people react to certain crimes. And it's 
like a staggering difference the way people react to when dads do it to when moms do it like when a dad murder suicides his kids or family every every single post is just kill him i hope he dies he's gonna get raped in jail and shit like that and then when it's the mother like we said it's always like i wonder what happened that would make her do this like what was she going through like most people are very sad for her and like paint her as a victim as well so there's um and on that kind of topic, there's another one that I really want to talk about, but I'll just quickly, I know I could talk about all this all day, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there was a woman called Lena Gallinaro. She was in Canada. It was July 31 this year. She killed her son and then herself. But her obituary says, it is a tragedy to lose someone as kind, selfless, gentle, and graceless, graceful, not graceless, graceful as Lena. She was compassionate, sincere, authentic, generous, and everything a good human could possibly, possibly be. We have lost two angels. I do also personally find it interesting to see how people are memorial memorialized following murder suicides. Um, and I guess, you know, as a family, it probably helps some people just to focus on the good times. And if she were, if, you know, if these mothers were good mothers for 99% of their life and then for whatever reason this happened. Yeah. It must be so hard for the families. Yeah, that's it. I think. All right. So that's all we have for this episode. I hope you guys I feel like enjoyed it is the wrong word, but I hope that you found it interesting. Yeah. Um, We are actually going to take a bit of a break for the holidays after this. Um, We are probably going to do like a Christmas crimes one. So we'll be back right before Christmas with an episode for you guys. Um, But we were hoping to, you know, have some time off, celebrate with our families. And we're going to still try to work on a few episodes to get them ready and plan ahead a little bit so that we have some stuff ready to go. So we'll keep you guys posted in our Facebook group, which hopefully you're all part of already. If you're not, just go to True Crime Society on Facebook. You'll find us. And same with Instagram, Twitter, and really any other social medias that you could think of. If you like the podcast and you want to keep us motivated, leave us a five-star <laughs> review and we'll be very pleased. <laughs> but one thing I did want to add in that I should have said earlier is that um, we do have some resources in our group, like resource posts and things like that for people, anyone who's struggling with needs support, basically. We do have some resource posts, posts under announcements. So if you have heard this episode and you want to check out some of those resources, you can go in the group and find those. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. It's been a tough year for a lot of people. We're, we're almost through it. Well, fingers crossed. It <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, I Hope you guys have a great week, great holidays to everyone, and we'll see you guys around Christmas. See you soon. Bye.